The month of love is not only dedicated to love, it's also known as Social Justice Month, as World Social Justice Day is on the 20th of this month indeed. Rui Lopez on the line, MD at Lopez Attorneys, talks to us about the importance of justice for all and how societal justice and anti-corruption are interlinked. Rui is also of the view that modern states around the world are required to gear the societies to advance the health and welfare of their citizens and, which is more, that there can be no doubt that acts of bribery and corruption in a state, regardless of whether these offences happen in the public or private sector, are detrimental and have a dominant effect on public welfare and social justice. And for you to consider and to speak to indeed the president in his state of the nation address said he's going to build his sona on four pillars the last of the four was a zero tolerance for corruption very much consistent with the theme of the month good evening Rui. thanks for your time good evening Tongedo, and thank you to you and your listeners for having us this evening Okay, now that we're talking about social justice in the context particularly of a bane of our progress in this country corruption how might you have felt when when the president specifically addressed corruption as a key pillar for the balance of this year's administration's work and focus? Yes, Ngeza, I think you've touched on a brilliant point. And that really speaks to the link between anti-corruption, compliance within the country, as you've indicated, either that occurring within the private or the public sector, um, and the, the, the links to it with regards to social justice. So when we refer to social justice and when we refer to anti-corruption, these are synonymous one, with one another. And, and the reason why we say that is that social justice addresses the welfare of the state, be that with regards to the state coffers and how that is distributed in order to provide access to resources for the citizens, or with regards to the private sector and how that relates to the free economy when we're dealing with the private sector. So from that perspective, Songeza, I think it's very, very welcoming to, to hear what uh, the President stated in his uh, State of the Nation address with regards to a zero tolerance on anti-bribery and corruption within the country. But again, we must emphasize that speaking it is not sufficient in all mm-hmm. material respects. There is an element of practical implementation that needs to occur in order for that to be effective. Um, and in order for that to occur, we require all of the authorities, be it the Hawks, the NPA, um, the National Director of Public Prosecutions and the like, to all be speaking to one another in order to ensure that expeditious and efficient prosecutions occur in the public sector. And when we're speaking about it in the private sector, that companies actually have adequate policies and mechanisms in place to, number one, detect instances or potential instances of bribery and corruption, and number two, ensure that there are adequate mechanisms in place to address these and enforce the policies of the company so that we actually are adhering to a zero tolerance when it comes to bribery and corruption. Let's talk about something which is seldom spoken about. You would know this, you're a lawyer. Relationship management, client entertainment, and how lawyers facilitate agreements to all of these fancy terms when, when broken down, amounts to nothing other than corruption in the private sector. So, Gizzi, you've touched on a very good point. And, and the, the point is that where you are engaging in these acts, which result in you having obtained any sort of benefit or avoided any detrimental impact uh, that you would have normally obtained in the normal course of events, had it not been for those instances of whining and dining, as we might want to call it, 
then you're actually engaging in the act of bribery and corruption. So in those instances, it speaks to the policies again, and it goes to the heart of that, saying that companies need to have these adequate policies in place. And in order to do that, there needs to be a, a complete sense check of, of companies and organizations to ask themselves, what entities are we dealing with? What persons are we dealing with? Had this been the conversation that happened many years ago, we would have been in a very different 2020 and 2021 with regards to the State Capture Commission, for example. So in those instances, we need to be asking ourselves, who are our third parties? Who are our clients? What business do we engage in? How are these engagements and the monetary flows that are occurring from these engagements facilitated? And how are we securing our business? You know, so at the end of the day, where you're whining and dining to get this, it's problematic and it needs to be rooted out. I want to focus on this. I want to stay on this. You know, the conversations around corruption, for the right reasons, have been predicated on what is happening in the public sector because as an immediate shareholder on the welfare of the state, I ought to be concerned. I do want to talk about a necessary conduit of all of these things. Government can't on its own be a corrupt enterprise. It needs the private sector to facilitate that. Why is it the general conversation on, of, and about corruption does not extend to the private sector? Why is even the focus, and I would even blame the media for that, of which I'm a member, for not having these honest conversations with captains of industries when we are all too happy to talk to the leaders in the public sector? Why are the business leaders not being brought to an SAFM? Why are their shareholders not holding them to their account? And by that, I mean simply passing a shareholder's resolution that so-and-so should no longer be part of this company. Why are we lackadaisical as the private interest in the country as to what is happening in the private sector? As a society, why is that lethargy there? So that, that is an absolutely brilliant point, I must say, and it's one point that I actually wanted to discuss with you today. So, you know, when we look at society in, in totality, and as you've indicated, the way that it's reported and the way that it's, you know, uh, discussed in, in public forums, is it's a very quick indication to say, well, the government's not performed on X, Y, and Z, or where they have performed, such has been defective, and there's these instances of corruption. But in, on the opposite hand, we do have facilitations of the private sector engaging in this, as we've seen um, coming out of the State Capture Commission. And as a result of that, you know, it, it begs that question that you've asked. And, you know, it, it's very difficult to give you an immediate answer as to why, you know, private sector instances of bribery and corruption are not as profound or, or more openly discussed than instances of governmental um, instances of bribery and corruption. And I think it plays into a very important dialogue that needs to be had going forward. And that is that irrespective of what sector the bribery and corruption occurs, it is bribery and corruption in its sense, in itself. And it should have the same penalties and it should have the same, you know, uh, discussion and points of discussion from that perspective. So, Songeza, I cannot necessarily say to you the reason is because we don't want to detract foreign direct investment or we don't want to detract from economical stimulation. But it's those conversations that we need to be having, a sense of transparency, a sense of accountability. And when we speak about, uh, you know, transparency and accountability, 
we're talking about employees on all levels within the private sector. In most instances, this should be done done from a top-down perspective Mm -hmm. so that you can see that leadership and management is abiding by this policy, is abiding by the principle of no tolerance on bribery and corruption in the workplace in any irrespective of its dealings in any aspect, and that they implement it and that they are the the drivers for that anti-bribery and corruption policy within the company. Because there's no point of implementing it. And as you've indicated, Sangez, and rightfully so, that where we don't have shareholders coming to account or where we don't have the board of directors coming to account and saying, you know, to the employees, this is what we're dealing with, this is the problem that's happened, and this is how we aim to address it and eradicate it going forward. We have a sense of a lack of transparency, a lack of engagement, a lack of accountability, and that's just not permissible in, 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 mm. in South African law in terms of the companies acting in that respect. So from that perspective, Sungezo, there needs to be this implementation and this facilitation of the policy that is brought in. And, you know, we can sit here until next week, Thursday, discussing the concept of a policy and how good a policy can be. But a policy in itself is not sufficient to eradicate the instances of bribery and corruption occurring within the private sector. It's training. It's education. It's, you know, informing your employees that there are these mechanisms to ensure that where you do see or where you do suspect instances where bribery or corruption has taken place. These are the avenues with which you can go to, and this is the process that will be followed. Certainly. I'm going to return to this question on accountability in the context of Section 8 of the Constitution. Application of the Constitution, the obligations that are imposed on state actors and non-state actors, if you will, horizontal application and vertical application of the Constitution. I do have a quarter, though, from Uppington. Good evening, Aisha. Your thoughts, please. Good evening, Sangeza, and your guests and to the listeners. Now, uh, Songhezo, this business of the walks and the NPA must deal with the public sector, but when it comes to the private sector, uh, then it must be policies and so forth and so forth. I disagree, absolutely. What applies to the pot must apply to the kettle. So the walks and the NPA should also get involved in the in the private sector because they've been totally absent there. That is one. And two, um, when who do you think corrupts these government people? It's, it's the private sector. So that is why the, the, the walks and the NPA must act in both of these sectors equally. Thank you. Thank you so much. Did I understand you to have essentially said different rules apply in the private sector? I don't think so, but perhaps I did. Your thoughts uh, in response to uh, Aisha Rui? Uh, Sangeza, you, you're quite right. Um, so I think from that perspective, I think there might be been a, a little bit of a misunderstanding. The NPA and the Hawks and all these special you know, directorates for investigation will, you know, are supposed to enact or enact themselves in such a way that they are indifferent to whether the bribery or corruption occurred within the private sector or the public sector. I think the statement is more to saying that they need to be communicating with one another in order to ensure efficient prosecutions occurring, irrespective of whether that instance of bribery or corruption happens within the public sector or the private sector. When we're speaking about the private sector, here we're saying, how does a company adequately prevent instances of bribery and corruption? And that's where the policy features in. But again, 
speaking about a policy is not sufficient. It's not going to be worth the paper it's written on unless it's implemented and actually adhered to in practice. So, uh, you know, I hope that that answers your listener's question. But from that perspective, the NPA and the, the Hawks and SAPs should actually be acting irrespective of whether it's in the private sector or the public sector. Yes. Let me return to the point that I raised earlier on, because I still want to respond ultimately to social justice. The Constitution, in its reading, and its reading in, obviously, speaks to the transformation of a society. And if one reads the preamble, it recognizes the injustices of the past. And for the best part of Chapter 2, the Bill of Rights, it speaks to how the state, as well as non-state actors, have these moral, social, and constitutional obligations, especially in ensuring that the social justice order of the country becomes more and more realized, progressively realized, so to speak. Now, we are making this distinction for the right reasons between public and private sector because it is important that the Constitution, although it makes that distinction between the public and the private, it does not absolve either of these two bodies, shall we say, in what the Constitution demands because it speaks to state actors, public, and non-state actors, private. It has a vertical application, public, or horizontal application, private. Your thoughts, because OPA correctly says, because this is a perception and perception is reality, absent a challenge. The private sector in this country is untouchable. They can do no wrong. It is that simple. And for so long as that is the sentiment, that becomes the reality. Sungeza, you have touched on a once again another brilliant point. And um, from that perspective, you're quite right um, with regards to the horizontal and vertical application and, and state actors and non-state actors being implicated or involved within the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So you are quite right, Sungeza, and unfortunately it is a situation where you know perception does become reality. So from that perspective, we are hoping and we are expecting that with the closure of the, the Zondo Commission of Inquiry, when that does occur, we are going to be seeing a large amount of prosecutions coming out of this, holding those, irrespective of whether they are in the public sector or they are in the private sector, to account for these instances of bribery and corruption that have come out and that we do try and see a sense of justice for all and underpinning of social justice within the country. Let's talk about social justice in the general sense now outside the conversation of corruption, and I'm not suggesting at all corruption doesn't touch on social justice. Does the country have an ethic, if you will, or an innate way of living? I suppose the principles of Ubuntu. Do you feel in how society South Africa operates within itself for its advancement generally considers... Ubuntu generally considers how important it is for people to have food, for people to have water, to have shelter, to have lights, to have warmth, to have love, to have friendship and companion. I'm looking at how, for instance, COVID has had the damaging effects in this country. And one can't help but think that if more South Africans on their own, Rui and Songhezo decided today, I am sacrificing half of my lunch and giving it to that guy who I know has got nothing because I can see he has nothing. I'm taking a portion of my salary in the hard lockdown that I would have otherwise spent at a restaurant and using that amount of money to buy a family groceries. Do we do enough of that? So, Sangeza, I think we, we need to distinguish it. So, for example, what, what you're hitting at is our individual acts of Ubuntu and how that's applied as citizens within the country. Does that need work? I think that that is a very 
you know, important discussion that we need to have as, as citizens of the country. Now, whether that occurs within the judiciary, I can assure you that Ubuntu is one of the underpinning factors that the constitutional court looks at, um, and many of the high courts and, and our lower courts as well, which they're bound to adhere to. So from that perspective, what we are seeing is coming out of the judiciary, the decisions that are made are underpinned to a large extent through the principle of Ubuntu and what that envisages. When we speak about uh, societal um, you know, aspects of Ubuntu and how that's implemented between you and me, for example, Sungizo, you know, that, that differs from person to person. And unfortunately, I must say, I think that there is a lot of work that still needs to be done within society to adequately say that, you know, everyone within the country is abiding by the principle of Ubuntu and selflessness to a large extent. You know, I think that that is a, a principle that's very hard to come by, especially when things get a little tight, as you've indicated with COVID-19. So from that perspective, Sungiz, I think that there's an element of what is coming out of our courts when we're seeking to enforce rights or get relief versus our day-to-day interactions with people. William Butler Yeats, the second coming, he, sa- he writes, turning and turning in the widening guy, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart as the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. This, in reference to what we are talking about, social justice, what happens when, whilst we could do something, oh man, it will change tomorrow. When we see something that we can change now, we relegate it to tomorrow. Or we turn a blind eye and pretend we did not see it. We know the minister is hoodwinking us here, but we decide to say nothing. We know that this corporate is running a corrupt enterprise, but we give it the benefit of the doubt because the website looks good and it says it does all of these things from a CSI perspective. What happens when we keep lowering the bar? What happens to a society ultimately turning and turning into the widening gyra? Well, well, Songhezo, that 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 is a good point again, I must say. So at the end of the day, where we all turn a full blind eye to this, where we as society do not hold individuals to account, where we as society choose to defer that responsibility or that obligation onto someone else because in the, the anticipation that that other individual will do the same, what we're essentially doing is creating an endless chain of someone who's going to assume responsibility that never does. And at the end of the day, Mandy Wiener writes it fantastically in The Whistleblowers, these individuals who were whistleblowers, who did blow the lid on these uh, institutions or entities that were engaged in corrupt activities, they were the individuals who no longer said, it's not going to go, it's not going to go to anyone else, it's going to fall onto me. And from that perspective, that is an important aspect that we need to look at and consider and, and acknowledge as well. So from that perspective, Sungez, and to answer your question, where we continue to do that, accountability and the rule of law and you know abiding by court decisions and the like will be deferred and deferred and deferred to no end. Mm. Um, and, and that just seeks to undermine, from a legal perspective at least, which is what uh, you know, at least I can attest to, is that at the end of the day, you, you seek to undermine the force and effect of the law and the rule of law and how it applies to everyone within the country. Which, which is extremely detrimental. And as you've indicated in your quote there, you know, what, what then leads from that to a situation of anarchy 
um, is is a very fine line because where individuals are not prepared to abide mm. by the rule of law mm. and enforce that and uphold it, then we've got uh, a massive issue on our hands. Final comment, the Public Procurement Act, albeit in its draft form, it should do something to address some of the public funds mismanagement that have a very direct bearing then on the social welfare of this country. So that's correct, Sungeza. So from that perspective, again, you know, legislation in South Africa, and I've had this discussion on multiple occasions, South Africa's legislative framework is phenomenal when you consider it from an objective perspective. Our legislation, in many respects, is is world-leading, and, and it's, it's renowned. But the problem is the practical implementation of that legislation. So where we have the legislation not being practically implemented, then that's going to be the problem. So where we have the mm. executive coming out and the legislature drafting legislation that gives effect to these principles and a zero tolerance on you know, mismanagement or misappropriation of funds, that's phenomenal. Or where the Auditor General has powers extended to it to investigate and audit municipalities, for example. That's perfect. But what we need to see is how those are implemented in practice and that they are duly adhered to. Otherwise, again, the rule of law and, and the content and substance of that, uh, of that legislation will not be effective. Let's leave it there. Sir, thank you so much for your thoughts. Mr. Rui Lopez. Thank you very much. MD of Lopez Attorneys giving us some insights into Social Justice Month, particularly the 20th being World Social Justice Day, and how we as South Africans, as citizens, me and you, the Joe Soap, as it were, have a collective responsibility to hold all those accountable Indeed accountable. It's 21 hours, 05 in fact. Good evening to the news team. Greg Hose.